Good evening, everyone. And on behalf of the Summer School panel, I offer you a very warm welcome to the second of our virtual Summer School theme talks. If you were here last night for Louise's talk or on Saturday for the, our opening worship, then welcome back. If you're here for the first time, then welcome. I hope and have every confidence that you'll find this evening's talk by Anne Peart both fascinating and nourishing. This week's events, which I'm calling Real Summer School in Virtual Space, have been organised by the Summer School panel. Some of you will have seen us waving last night, but for those who didn't, the Summer School panel consists of Jane Blackall, Kate Brady McKenna, that's me, Louise Baumberg, who I think hasn't made it here yet, Michael Allard, <laughs> and Nicola Temple. So the welcome is from all of us. Some bits of housekeeping before I hand you over to Anne. Our theme talks are longer than usual sermons and they're both a talk and an act of worship. Because of the length and because staring at a screen with no breaks is really tiring, you have our blessing to turn your screen off sometimes to rest your eyes. Please take care of your own needs. This talk is being recorded as are all of our theme talks. We hope to be able to have the recording available by bedtime this evening, technology permitting. The recordings focus on whoever's speaking and there'll only be fleeting views of the participants. But if you'd rather not appear again, you have our blessing to turn your camera view off. You will notice that the chat box isn't active and that you're muted to avoid unnecessary distractions. We're not expecting any invasions but Jane and Nicola are highly trained Zoom ninjas and will deal with anything unpleasant if it does happen. You should be able to turn automatic subtitling on and off at the bottom of your screen, it's labelled closed caption. The live subtitles can be a little idiosyncratic so while Anne might say something shocking it's also possible that she didn't and the subtitles did. After the talk has ended, we'll take a five minute break for everyone to put the kettle on and then we'll be offering you the chance to join in a breakout room to enjoy some discussion on the talk. The breakout room discussions aren't recorded or monitored, but please, I know that you'll be respectful of everybody. You may choose to leave at that point. We acknowledge that some people don't like breakout groups and also that you may have to put your dinner on or your toddler to bed. If you do choose to come back after the breakout sessions, you'll be popped back into this room. If you would like a pastoral discussion about anything that crops up this evening, Michael Allard and myself, both of us Unitarian ministers, are available until 9.45 this evening, either by email or Facebook Messenger. You'll have had our details with your invitation. 
Our theme speaker this evening is the Reverend Dr. Anne Peart. Anne read geography at Newhall, Cambridge and taught in various schools before family life intervened. In her 40s, she retrained as a Unitarian minister and after ministries in London and Manchester was principal of Unitarian College Manchester until retirement in 2009. A lifelong Unitarian, she's held many voluntary positions, including presidencies of the Unitarian Women's League, Historical Society, Ministerial Fellowship, and the General Assembly of Unitarian and Free Christian Churches, of which she became an honorary member in 2018. She's researched and written on the history of Unitarian women and was the co-founder of the feminist Unitarian Women's Group. An out lesbian, she's been active in LGBTQ, feminist, social justice and environmental causes. This is Anne's first summer school, but she was previously a regular at its predecessor, the Unitarian Holiday Conference. Anne, you're very, very welcome. So I invite you now to settle into a spirit of receptiveness and community. After our opening music, the next face you see will be Anne's.
and so we light our chalice. As we gather, we light this candle as a symbol of hope. May the inner light within each of us be kindled each day. May the light of truth and goodness be a part of our lives constantly. May we seek always to bring light wherever the deep shadows fall. Hello everyone and welcome to this short act of worship before our talk. I'd like to share a reading by Pat Wormersley called Changing Our Minds. Countless times every day we make choices. In an emergency, urgent action may be called for and occasionally we find ourselves struggling to make decisions in agonizingly difficult and testing circumstances. Whilst we may seek advice and support from others, we probably assume that we should be competent to rely on our own judgment. After all, as Unitarians, we claim and cherish the right to make up our own minds in matters of religious belief and practice. Is it always desirable or appropriate, though, to reach a firm conclusion? What are minds for? Maybe they're not intended so much to be made up as to be kept open and receptive to change as we encounter new truths, listen to the differing views of others, achieve deeper insights, and inevitably experience potent reminders that human life is far more unpredictable, complex and mysterious than our limited and often reductionist explanations have ever envisaged. If we make up our minds too firmly and conclusively about ourselves and others, the nature of the world we live in and what it might mean to be more fully human, we risk imprisoning ourselves within increasingly narrow boundaries. Here we may feel safer and more in control, but, but at the cost of denying the inescapable truth that we are part of a reality which is always in process offering us new opportunities for developing and growing and discovering previously unimagined dimensions of being. So said Pat Wormersley. And now a reflection by Donald Johnson. There is no single revelation that will simplify the most perplexing human problems to the point where every doubt dissolves and truth is absolutely clear to all without the pressure for obedience, without enforced assumptions. 
we need the company of those who know how much they do not know. We need the company of those who think and know how feeling often takes the place of thought. We serve one another best in fallible but honest ways. The wisdom that we share the best is the wisdom that we need to find. And now a few moments of prayer. Spirit of life and love. We bring our gratitude for our lives. Moments of joy and compassion. We bring our pain in a world troubled by disease, conflict, global warming, poverty. May we be a part of the healing of our world, bearers of truth and justice, so that all may flourish. Amen. Blessed be. How would you know what is true? And how can truth serve our work for justice? Reverence for truth is very much a part of our Unitarian identity. Our tradition has emphasized this for hundreds of years. When Manchester College first started way back in 1786, its divinity tutor, Thomas Barnes, dedicated it to truth, to li liberty, to religion. Note that truth came first before religion. About the same time, Joseph Priestley, one of the acknowledged founders of the Unitarian movement in Britain, disputed with his friend Anna Barbold about the significance of the search for truth. To him, truth was by far the most important aspiration but Barbold, in a letter to her niece, Lucy Aiken, commented that Priestley followed the truth as a man who hawks follows his sport at full speed, straight forward, looking only upward and regardless into what difficulties the chase may lead him. Barbold, on the other hand, saw religion in a wider context. She wrote, as a system of opinions, its sole object is truth, and the only faculty that has anything to do with it is reason, exerted in the freest and most dispassionate inquiry. As a principal regulation of our conduct, religion is a habit, and like all other habits, of slow growth and gaining strength only by repeated exertions but it likewise, may likewise be considered as a taste, an affair of sentiment and feelings. In this sense, it is properly called dev devotion. It seems to me that this view of the search for truth in its context of a worshiping and living community is still relevant today. The contemporary theologian, Andrew Shanks, 
who was for a time the theologian in residence at Manchester Cathedral and very welcoming to Unitarians, linked the very nature of faith to trust. And for me, trust is related to truth. How can I put my trust in something or someone if I do not believe it to be true? Shanks explored the nature of truth and distinguished between truth as correctness and truth as openness. I think that Stephanie may well talk about this later in the week, but just for now, I want to float that idea and return to some of its implications later on. My exploration is primarily in the context of a caring community. But the first part is a basic foray into what philosophers might mean when they talk about truth. Then I go on to look at some aspects of this in feminist work and end by placing us back in the context of our community. A very long time ago, in my gap summer between school and university, I joined a geographical fieldwork expedition to the Swiss Alps. I was the youngest among the group of mainly teachers and university lecturers, and it certainly enlarged my education in all sorts of ways. But on the geographical topics, quite often when we were exploring the area, one person would comment on a feature, saying of a rock, for example, that's a schist, or of a feature, that's a medial moraine. I got teased about asking so often, how do you know? But after the laughter, I usually got one or both of two sorts of answer. The first, rather unhelpfully, was, I've seen lots before. Or the second, more patiently explained the distinguishing features which led to that identification. So when it comes to matters of truth, I have an involved suspicion of things I cannot see, though I am very slowly coming to terms with the knowledge that, as the little prince said, what is essential is invisible to the eye. All of us have experience of incidences of both truth and the lack of it. But it's not as easy to identify as a geographical feature, and I need a more reliable guide. A good friend lent me a copy of A Short History of Truth by Julian Bagini, who surveys 10 sorts of truth. I found this quite a shock and it changed some of my rather naive thoughts about what might be considered truth. So I'm going to share with you a short exploration of Bajini's guide to different sorts of truth, with particular emphasis on my question, how do you know? One, because God, the divine, revealed it. Bajini calls these eternal truths, and they're often in the form of a sacred text. Examples would be the story of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, or the story told by Joseph Smith 
who said that in 1825 he received a vision telling him the, um, the story of the Lamanites, people who were descended from the tribe of Israel that escaped to the Americas in around 400 CE and was written on gold plates buried by their last prophet, Moroni. Moroni returned to Smith a year later and led him to the plates. Moroni then instructed Smith in the lost language so that he could translate the plates into what became the Book of Mormon. While there's no one text or story, including this one of the beginning of the Mormons, the Bible, the Quran, or the Quran. There's no one of these which is believed by a majority of people in the earth. Most people worldwide do believe that a particular text or religion is true and divinely ordained. This is not so much a thought process as one of feeling related to one's identity and sense of self. Some people take their sacred text literally, but many adapt their understanding to accommodate other modes, modes of recognizing truth, such as modern science. I find that it's often unhelpful to try to challenge a so-called eternal truth directly, but it is possible to look at the effects of a revelation on its adherence. Secondly, something might be true because someone I said, uh, someone I respect said it, what Virginia calls authoritative truth. The authority can be an expert in their field or in some cases a respected religious teacher. Here it's important to know what authorizes them. If it is divine authority, how does this extend to human matters, such as the division of wealth, for example? Think of all things bright and beautiful, with the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate. God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. If the person is a secular expert, what are the grounds of their expertise? And is it an area where even experts can differ? such as economic or pandem pandemic modeling, which depend on certain assumptions, or one where one can be precise, such as the diagnosis of an illness. Virginie suggests a two-step process. Firstly, ask, is this an area where anyone can speak of truth? We may doubt that the particular religious leaders have access to spiritual expertise, so may dismiss their claims. Secondly, if we think there are truths to be known by experts, what kind of expert is trustworthy? A medically qualified doctor may be more reliable than an elderly relative when it comes to a particular health matters, but not on matters of gardening for example. In this case, we need to make sure that the area of expertise is appropriate and that the particular expert is trustworthy. So we are called on to make a judgment. 
It is very tempting at this stage to give examples from the sphere of current politics, but I'm sure you can think of those for yourselves. Thirdly, I may wonder about truth because someone has a motive for concealing the information, what Virginia calls the esoteric or hidden truth. He uses this to mean truths which are deliberately kept from people, possibly for their own good, as in a cancer diagnosis of a child, for example, or to protect someone's interests, as in hiding sensitive economic information, or as a conspiracy. There are so many examples of conspiracy theories at the moment that I leave you to choose one for yourselves as an example. Fourthly, because someone has applied their reason, what Virginia calls reasoned truths. As rational dissenters, in the, as the early Unitarians were often called, we have always prized reason in our search for truth. Virginia stresses, however, that it is an imperfect tool with imperfect users and should not be divorced from observation and cautions us to be wary of rationalization after the event. He warns that reason does not lead us to truth if only we obediently follow it. It is more like a navigational tool that can help us to get closer to the truth, if only we know how to use it and what we are looking for. Fifthly, because evidence points to it. This leads us to empirical truths derived from evidence and experience using a rational scientific method. David Hume, the 18th century Scottish Enlightenment philosopher distinguished two types of results of empirical inquiry. Firstly, relations of ideas, and secondly, matters of fact. Relations of ideas are about truths of mathematics and logic, and are effectively true by definition, but reveal nothing of the real world. Matters of fact cannot be established by pure, log pure logic and can never be established with complete certainty. To take the example that Louise used last night, we are confident that the sun will rise tomorrow morning, but theoretically at least, Earth could be hit by a large asteroid in the night, changing circumstances completely. In this sense, empirical truths are always open to refinement, correction, and doubt. With greater knowledge and experiment, old truths can be improved upon. Virginie warns us that this is not the same as saying that seeing is believing, as we know that pictures can be faked, and that a conjurer sawing a woman in half is usually only an illusion. Sixth, because I want to make this true, 
This sounds like wishful thinking, but in certain circumstances, it is possible to bring situations into being by saying words. Pagini calls this creative truth. The most obvious example of such a speech act is a minister saying to a couple, I now pronounce you husband and wife, or wife and wife, or husband and husband. There can be confusion here between intention and description, but Virginia is hopeful writing, past truths cannot be undone, but future ones are not yet set in stone. Seven, because that is how it appears to me, what Virginia calls relative truths. Later in this talk, I will expand on the notion of situated knowledge as developed by feminists, amongst others. Different perspectives on a situation may vary and may be genuine, but this does not negate the possibility of a fuller version of reality leading to something nearer what we might call truth. Eight, because everybody knows that, or it's generally accepted that. Virginia calls these powerful truths. When people with power over communications can promote their line and suppress other views. He writes, every time we debunk an alleged truth propounded by the self-interested powerful, we prove that truth can overcome power and must not always be its servant. Again, feminist insights about speaking truth to power will feature in the second part of this talk. Nine, because this seems to be moral right, morally right, moral truths are concerned with cultural practices and values and may appear to differ widely in various parts of the world and between particular societies. Here, logic is less important than empathy, what Hume calls moral sympathy. Our ideas about what is right and wrong do change as more facts are known. Take, for example, attitudes over the last 50 years to homosexuality, the emission of polluting gases, and the devaluing of people on grounds of race. As more facts are known, it is important to change not just our minds, but our hearts. And lastly, because this is how I, I experience reality, holistic truths. Virginia writes, truths do not stand or fall independently but are held in a web, a network of other truths, all of which mutually support each other. He considers that not all truths have the same importance, but all are held in the web of belief that we spin for ourselves. So it is incumbent on us to look at our own webs as honestly as we can, and look to see what particular truths lack support and merit further investigation. 
Yesterday, Louise talked about the dangers of only choosing truths that fit in with our existing ideas or, or wishes. And this is um, an example of that. At a more objective level, the way scientific community interrogates both established and new theories in order to arrive at better ones is such an example. By this stage, you probably have mental indigestion. So I suggest a short pause to have a stretch and think about these 10 sorts of truth. Perhaps you are shocked as I was, and perhaps you are also surprised by some of the genius ideas. We'll have a break for two minutes to have a stretch and if necessary, a quick dash to get a glass of water or go to the loo. See you in two minutes. So I wonder if anything surprised you about those uh, 10 truths. I was rather shocked by the lack of emphasis on reason. I guess I'm still a, a rational dissenter at heart. This may be something you might like to consider in group discussions later. I had naively assumed that if we thought about things properly and did our research to find out the facts, 
we could arrive at something approaching the truth. It serves me right for venturing out of my particular area of expertise. But reverence for truth has continued through the years as a distinctive mark of Unitarianism. A hundred years ago, C.P. Scott, the Unitarian editor and owner of the Manchester Guardian, wrote in his centenary essay that comment is free, but facts are sacred. And he went on, it is well to be frank, it is even better to be fair. These days, it seems harder to discern the facts as we are, we are bombarded with all sorts of information and have to rely on experts or trusted sources to guide us. It's all too easily unconsciously to select the facts we want to believe. To take another example from my days as a geography student, I spent one summer working at a field studies center on the Welsh borders. As part of the deal, I was allowed to join one of the courses one day a week. In successive weeks, visiting tutors took our students to a particular area in the Welsh borders. The first week, the tutor was an expert in physical geography, and we noticed and sketched all sorts of physical features, glacial moraines, U-shaped valleys, scree slopes, and so on. The following week, the tutor was a human geographer, and we looked at medieval cultivation terraces, old field patterns, the course of the tracks and roads. There was hardly any overlap in what we saw, as it was pointed out, but the landscape was the same. We view the world from our particular situation as individuals and as groups. One way of working towards a more accurate or larger view of reality is to view it from a range of different positions or standpoints. At the moment on Zoom, you have only one view of me. If you looked from a different angle, you would see that I'm sitting at a large desk, which is far from tidy, and you might see what I'm wearing below the waist. If you looked from behind, you would see that I'm facing the window with a view of trees at the moment moving with the, the gale force wind. When it comes to seeing what is fair, it's important to view things from the standpoint of those who are usually missed out, marginal individuals and groups. Because each person and each group experiences the world differently, their perspective is different. Those who are usually in the majority or in the powerful positions where their views are well publicized and acted on, often just see the conventional truth what Virginia calls powerful truth, while others ignored by those in power may see things quite differently. This leads us to two different aspects of feminist thought, both of which help us to take a fairer view. The first is standpoint theory, and the second is the privileged perspective of the oppressed or the marginalized. 
standpoint theory was developed from the writings of the 19th century German philosopher Hegel, who wrote of the different perspectives of the master who could command his slave to do whatever he wished, but need not consider the slave's needs, and the slave who had to know the master's needs and language in order to follow his orders and meet his master's needs and so survive. But the slave also experienced his own very different living conditions and possibly even a different language. This idea was taken on board by Marxists to develop a class, class analysis of oppression. Now it's used by many disempowered groups. Bell Hooks, the black American woman writer, showed how it applied to her life when she explained to be in the margin is to be part of the whole but outside the main. As black Americans living in a small Kentucky town, the railroad tracks were a daily, daily reminder of our marginality. Across those tracks were paved streets, stores we could not enter, restaurants we could not eat in, and people we could not look directly in the face. Across those tracks was a world we could work in as maids, as janitors, as prostitutes, as long as it was in the service capacity. We could enter that world, but we could not live there. We had always to return to the margin, to cross the tracks, to shacks and abandoned houses on the edge of town. As there are multiple margins and multiple centers of dominant discourses, this paves the way for the acceptance of many differing viewpoints. But this is not the same as relegating truth to some sort of relative position where all ideas are equally valuable. It's still up to us to evaluate the evidence and make a considered judgment. A view from the centre gives only one perspective, but a view from the margins can, if the person so marginalised has struggled to find their own perspective, give a bigger, fairer picture. This enlarged view from the margin is what gives those who live on those margins, the deprived and the ignored, an advantage when it comes to recognising the truth. So they should be privileged in any search for what is most true. Bell Hooked wrote, Living as we did on the edge, we developed a particular way of seeing reality. We looked both from the outside in and from the inside out. We focused our attention on the centre as well as the margin. We understood both. Our survival depended on an ongoing public awareness of the separation between margin and centre and an ongoing private acknowledgement that we were a necessary vital part of that whole. Unfortunately, this is still the black experience when knowledge of what the white view expects is vital to survival. What relevance is this to us as a Unitarian community, seeking to live in love and integrity 
respecting the truth and searching for justice. Unitarians are a small minority in the UK and may be seen as a marginal group. This gives us the advantage, if we work for it, of viewing reality from the perspective of both the dominant centres and our own marginalised situations. I've spoken in other places about our calling to be on the margin. From our marginalised space, we can reach out to others who are also marginalised and seeking justice. While every view is partial, a coalition of marginalised viewpoints gives a much clearer idea of reality than just one. Recently, our local Manchester Interfaith Network has been hosting a series of Zoom meetings on the theme of Black Lives Matter, when different people from black communities have spoken about their experiences. The format was that we listened without interruption and then in the following chat time did not give our own non-black experiences of other kind of racism but took care to respond with respect to ask for, um, for clarification or further elucidation and we sat with the pain. At a later point we will meet to consider what actions we can take. I found this to be moving, illuminating and helpful. I already know about some of the differences and figures between black and white experiences concerning treatment by the police, but was totally unaware of some of the differences in healthcare outcomes, particularly around childbirth, for example. Although such knowledge is painful, it enlarges our understanding and as a way of seeking both truth and justice as much to recommend it. As Patricia Hill Collins put it, each group speaks from its own standpoint and shares its own partial situated knowledge. But because each group perceives its own truth as partial, the knowledge is unfinished. Each group becomes better able to consider other groups' standpoints without relinquishing the uniqueness of its own standpoint or suppressing other groups' partial perspectives. Such a coalition of marginal truth and justice-seeking groups would be a force for good, a way of enabling us to speak truth to power. And as Unitarians, we could seek out such groups in our various communities. So one way of seeking truth is to work with other marginalised groups. But we also need to look and listen, look for and listen to those on the margins within our own communities. Whose voices are not heard? Each of us moves in a variety of circles and has different positions in relation to the various centres, sometimes at the centre, sometimes nearer the margin. This work of enabling more voices to be heard involves enlarging not just our thinking, 
with our hearts as well. It seemed to me that in order for a group to gain a more true perspective on reality, it needs to enable the voices at its margins to be heard. This connects with Andrew Shanks's vision of truth as openness. The more we can listen to other voices, the greater our truth can become. And there is one further aspect to this. In order to welcome those unheard on the margins, we need to practice what has been called radical hospitality, to welcome the stranger with open hearts. Peter Hawkins and Judy Wright have talked of wide-angled empathy in relation to exploring white racism, and this too contributes to a genuinely welcoming community. After the break, you might like some questions to start off group discussions. So here are a couple of ideas. What prevents us from being open to other people's perspectives? And secondly, how can we make our congregations more welcoming to different marginalized groups and people? So let us end this part with some closing words of blessing. Let us go forward together, mindful of our precious freedom and of our great responsibilities. May we rededicate ourselves to seek truth boldly, to show love constantly, and to serve all humanity faithfully, so that the blessings of peace be in our hearts and on our world. Amen. Blessed be.